Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. My name's James Whitmore. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land this show is being broadcast from, the Rwandri people of the Kulin Nations, and pay my respects to Elders past and present. In today's show, a new study that shows marine life around Australia is declining and the campaign to stop shark nets in New South Wales. But first, here's an announcement. Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family, and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation, and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. Australia's marine life is under threat from all sorts of things, from climate change to pollution to fishing, but it's pretty hard to know just how populations of marine life are changing. New research, though, has for the first time looked at over a thousand species of corals, algae, fish and marine invertebrates over the past decade and found a third are threatened with extinction. To find out more, I spoke to John Turnbull from the University of Sydney. Hi, John. So your study found that marine life has declined basically over the entire continent since 2008, but it's not the same story everywhere. Where has marine life been declining the most? Uh, thanks, James. Yes, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a very large-scale study, in, and, and it could be considered the largest scale in terms of space, time, and um, different categories of animal and, and, um, plant. Um, and so we looked all around Australia. We looked at fish, invertebrates and algae. And, uh, we looked at, um, those, we broke the populations into three main categories. There were tropical species, warm water species and cool water species. And the net of it is that um, whilst there were declines all the way, um, all the way round and in multiple categories, the greatest declines are in the southern half of Australia. And what species are you seeing the biggest declines in? The weedy sea dragon is a good example. We mentioned it in the paper and it's had its ups and downs. So it was, it was listed as, uh, I think it may have been vulnerable and then its listing was discontinued because there wasn't enough, there weren't enough data. 
But the reef life survey data shows a substantial decline, uh, over 50% decline in populations of the weedy sea dragon. So that's just one example of a much-loved species. Often divers will go to a site just to see a weedy sea dragon, and our data show that they are declining substantially. And I've had a conversation with the scientist that's involved in the IUCN listings for threatened species for that, and he said, yes, we should we should revisit now and see if we can get them relisted as threatened because um like i said they 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 would that was downgraded because there weren't enough data well now there are data there are there are over a thousand species in the data set and then we we trimmed it down to the ones that we had enough data on to draw conclusions um so i'd probably it's probably best to talk in terms of categories so um in the tropical regions, um, so, so the general thing that's happening is um, when we have a, a warm year or a marine heat wave, um, the species um, live along the coast. And so there are some of a given species, there are some that are in the warm end of their range and some that are in the cool end. So the, the cool, cool edge of the range is further south. Generally, um, animals and plants at the northern end of their range would decline and those at the southern end of their range would increase. And so if you had enough of a ge- uh, geographic range all the way along the coast, you'd end up with a balancing. And so that's what happened with a lot of tropical species. Cooler species have a, don't have a, a, a cooler place to retreat to. And so uh, the, the net of it was then that the cooler species um, declined in the warmer end of their range, but there was no cooler end for them. And in particular, invertebrates. So um, invertebrates uh, and among the invertebrates, so invertebrates, um, when we say invertebrates, we mean the mobile invertebrates, things like seashells, sea stars, sea cucumbers, um, crabs. Uh, the, the category that really suffered the most was echinoderms, in particular things like sea stars. Uh, and sea urchins were really hammered. So, so they were the, the biggest losers, but they were losers in all categories. The other big losers were, um, algae, in particular kelp, particularly in the southwest, because they've had some very strong heat wave impacts over there. And why those two particular groups? Is it because they, um, have very narrow tolerance for, um, temperature as it is, or is there something else going on? Yeah, it's hard to say why. There are a lot of factors to consider with um, invertebrates. Uh, one really important factor um, is that um, they they really don't have uh, a lot of latitude in the temperature ranges that they can tolerate. They they don't they can't, for example, they also can't swim to a bit deeper water where it might be a little bit cooler. Um, you know, they're attached to the substrate normally. So um, there are a number of factors within vertebrates, uh, but their tolerance for these uh, warming and more extreme conditions, I think, is generally lower. Um, there's also um, cumulative impacts. So um, an example would be in Sydney, uh, we've seen really steep declines in sea urchins, but that's not just temperature. That's also runoff from three successive La Niña's. So it's a combination of things, and it's it's the same thing. If you have a heavy rainfall event, those sea urchins are stuck in that shallow water. They can't they can't escape that that pulse of 
polluted and uh, overly fresh water. So, um, so that's, that's the story with, um, invertebrates. And with kelp, there's another factor that comes into play. So kelp, um, obviously needs nutrients in the water. They don't have roots like plants on land where they draw their nutrients. Their nutrients come from the seawater. And tropical water has less nutrients than temperate water. So when you have a surge, a strengthening of the East Australian current, uh, you have um, warmer and l- nutrient-poor um, tropical waters coming further south than they would normally come, then that has a strong impact on the kelp. On the other hand, you also found that corals populations have been relatively stable. I'm interested in how that squares with um, what we hear about mass coral bleachings over the past decade. Yes, well, there are different there are different survey methods, and and we survey using photo quadrants, and and our our coverage with Reef Life Survey is only where we put our overall survey sites. Um, but the I think the biggest um, the best way of appreciating the difference is when we have a large-scale bleaching event, it might be in the northern end, for example, of the Great Barrier Reef. And that, that can be absolutely tragic. You know, huge areas of corals can die. But the southern end might be okay. So that's really what we found. We didn't find that the corals weren't suffering. We found that the southern end of uh, the range of corals was actually um in, to some extent, compensating for the declines in, at the northern ends of, of the range. You mentioned that it's not just all heat waves, that there are other factors at play. So what are some of the things we can do to address this decline moving forward? Yeah, well, another another uh, multiplier, if you like, or synergistic effect is uh, we found that larger-bodied fish uh, declined more rapidly than smaller bodied fish. Uh, and so whilst we're seeing patterns with temperature, then, um, the, you know, the, uh, the implication, if you think, okay, well, why would the larger body fish decline? They're the ones that we like to target when we're with fishing. So, um, so one thing we can do is we can try to remove as many pressures as possible at a local level. So if we have good marine parks, for example, we reduce fishing pressure. That's just one less stressor on those animals, which means they have more of a chance of surviving the warming pulse that might come from a heat wave. So I think that's one thing is, is really good, um, marine parks, good, and, and ones that are fully protected. Um, so we can reduce some of that fishing pressure. Um, but then there are other things we can do locally. So, um, if, if we take that, um, runoff example, um, managing our stormwater, uh, better so that it doesn't create those pulses. It, it, it's handled, uh, the capacity of our systems to handle stormwater surges is improved, um, reducing pollutants going into the system. So there are, there are a number of local actions that can at least give the organisms a chance of coping with the temperature problem but of course the temperature problem isn't going away and if we don't treat uh, if we don't deal with that and and good old global warming and fossil fuels um, then uh, those other measures uh, might give us a temporary reprieve but we still have um, the cliff the edge of the cliff coming uh, with these species because 
you know, um, around 30% of the species in southern Australia uh, had enough population decline to be considered um, threatened. And so uh, we could be facing uh, extinctions of species, particularly in the south. And the the problem with losses in the south, um, the tropical species, often they live somewhere else as well. They might live up in Asia whereas the southern species have very high endemism. So 70 to 80% of the species down south live nowhere else in the world. And so if we lose those species, then there's not another population somewhere that they're still hanging around on Earth. If we lose them in the south of Australia, we lose them altogether. So this you've looked at over a 1,000 species over a decade, obviously a huge amount of data. Can you tell us a bit about the amazing effort that goes into collecting all of this information? Yeah, Reef Life Survey, I started with Reef Life Survey as a volunteer about 10 years ago. It's been going for longer than that. It's been going for 15 or more years. Um, and I, I got involved just because um, it, 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 the, one, the way to think of it is we're building this huge database of what's happening under the ocean without actually asking the questions. We're just building the database. And so then when we do have a question to ask, which is large scale, we can go and interrogate that that store of data that's been built in advance. So Reef Life Survey um, is all done by volunteers. Many of the volunteers happen to be also scientists or um, technically qualified in related areas because it attracts those sorts of people. Um, but of course, we have volunteers from all walks of life, teachers and, you know, people that work in um, business and all, all sorts. So, um, we get, we get volunteers who are highly, um, motivated. So it's quite a selective process. It's not really a, a volume thing. It's about finding really dedicated and pe- people who are prepared to put in the time. We train them up to a level of surveying that, uh, allows us to collect um, scientific quality data and and then we go out and do our surveys and and we tend to do them in in um, intensive sessions so we're doing Jervis Bay for example uh, this coming weekend a four-day trip where we've got about 12 divers and we'll all hit the water and do 20 or 30 sites um, so we, we do them in those in those uh, if you like those planned trips but we also do them locally. So our local Sydney team goes out and does surveys uh, most of the year round because, you know, a dive where you're doing a survey is a, is a, is a much different experience to a regular dive. You see so much more because we lay down a 50 meter transect tape and we study that 50 meter stretch intensively. We search under overhangs. We part the kelp and look at what's living in the kelp. So it really is a close examination of of that site and and it, it, therefore it's uh for those who like that sort of thing it's it's a great way to understand what's happening out there that was john turnmore from the university of sydney after the break the latest on protecting sharks and other marine life in new south wales but first here's moju with money you're listening to out of the blue on 3cr community radio
And you're listening to 3CR. Please support community radio. Subscribe now. That was Moju with Money. And you're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. Shark nets are used at some beaches in Queensland and New South Wales to kill sharks. The idea is that they protect people from shark encounters. But they also kill lots of other marine life, like a dolphin that recently drowned in a net in Sydney. So do the nets actually do the job they're meant to be doing? And at what cost to marine life? To find out, I spoke to Sea Shepherd campaigner, Lauren Sanderman. Hi, Lauren. So recently there was a tragic incident, a dolphin caught in the, in the shark nets near Sydney. How common is it for wildlife like marine mammals to be caught in these nets? Unfortunately, this kind of incident, while we don't always get image of every single entanglement, is quite a common occurrence in shark nets because they're so destructive for our marine environment. Um, for example, last meshing season, a turtle was killed in shark nets every 12 days. So it's quite a common occurrence across dolphins, rays, turtles, you know, other marine life, um, all the marine life that we cherish. But unfortunately, it's often out of sight, out of mind, but it's quite destructive and quite common. Mm. As you just mentioned, like there might be some uncertainty. Well, we don't necessarily know exactly how many are being uh, uh, how much marine wildlife is being caught in these nets. Who is keeping track of these numbers? Is anyone? Um, so the Department of Primary Industries in New South Wales oversees this program and they release, I guess, the annual catch record um, in July every year, the end of the program. So for context, shark nets are only in place in New South Wales eight months of the year. They're set from September 1st to the end of April. Um, come July, they release the catch numbers um, for what's officially recorded. So uh, officially, um, we know those numbers in July. But again, this, these are numbers from only what's found in the net is recorded. Um, we know things slip out, um, things die off, they've been released. Um, so this is a very, very conservative number that's officially recorded. Mm, so we're not really getting a true sense of the impact of shark netting, in other words. No, by no stretch of the imagination. And, of course, it's not just marine mammals getting caught, but also sharks themselves. Do we have any data on that? Well, yeah, there's plenty of sharks. So uh, I think for context, I should describe. So shark nets in New South Wales technically are only meant to target three species of sharks. So white shark, tiger shark, 
or bull shark. Um, they're not very good at uh, catching uh, either of those species. So, for example, last meshing season, there was about officially 376 animals that were caught in the program. Uh, only 51 were white tiger or bull sharks. Um, but there are plenty of other sharks that aren't targeted uh, that are caught and killed in this program, including, you know, critically endangered grey nurse sharks, um, dusky whales, you know, even wobbegongs. Um, so basically anything that can swim in the ocean or dive in the ocean can and has often been caught in these shark nets. So we can we take a step back and can you run us through how these shark nets have come to be in the waters of Sydney in the first place? Because they've been there quite a while, uh, haven't they? They have. They've been uh, in New South Wales. They've been used since uh, 1930s. So we're talking about a 1930s kind of standard of beach safety when we talk about shark nets. And I guess for the average listener, when we talk about shark nets, we're not talking about shark enclosures or a barrier as they're commonly misconceived. We're talking about uh, 150 metres of gill netting that's set out about 500 metres from the shoreline and only goes about halfway up the water column from the surface of the bed. So they're not a barrier. We're talking about a stray fishing net that's just kind of anchored off the shore of about 51 beaches in New South Wales. So these nets were designed in the 30s essentially to the logic behind them was to kill local populations of sharks. And, you know, we know well now that sharks don't have local populations. They're highly migratory species. But um, they've just kind of, they're a relic of a really uh, barbaric and archaic way of approaching um, bather protection and shark mitigation. And they very much stay in the water purely because they've just always been there. Um, but the scientific evidence we that people know now, we know now that shark nets do not perform any kind of risk reduction um, in protecting bathers, and we know that they're horribly destructive for the marine environment. Now, can we just break down that um, that risk protection element? So, I mean, they are killing sharks. Um, why are they not um, helping mitigate the risk of people who enter the water? That's an excellent question. I mean, so for context, about 40% of sharks that are caught in um, shark nets are caught on the beach side of the net. So they're not actually preventing sharks from engaging and interacting with people. Um, we know that from, so these nets are deployed between Newcastle and Wollongong, um, about 85% of shark interactions that occur in that stretch of area uh, happen at a beach where there's a shark net in the water. So the shark nets aren't actually preventing interactions from happening. Um, so they're not actually preventing uh, bites and interactions from occurring. Uh, and we know historically as well from other case studies around the world that killing, actively going out to try and cull sharks doesn't actually reduce the bite or the risk of a shark bite occurring. So it's kind of this double whammy of they're not there as a barrier or a deterrent to sharks to actually approach the beach. And they're not actually effective at, you know, killing all the sharks in the ocean, um, which we know doesn't help um, with, say, the protection anyway. With shark nets, uh, New South Wales are only in the water, as I said, for eight months of the year. They've been doing that since the 40s. So um, we, we know we don't see spikes in shark interactions um, during those times. We know people are using the water in winter a lot more um, thanks to, you know, improvements in wetsuits, dedicated surfers, swimmers. But we also know from around the world, shark nets have been used in other places around the world and they've been removed in other places around the world. Um, so when we talk about replacing shark nets, we know historically we've seen that we're not kind of taking a gamble on this. We know that shark nets without a me any measure or any stretch of the imagination do not work to protect people. Um, so people want to be able to coexist with a healthy, thriving marine ecosystem and sharks are so fundamental to that. And we can have that with modern measures and modern shark mitigation. 
We wouldn't accept a safety standard that's over nearly 100 years old in any other part of our lives. So why is our ocean safety the exception? Mm. So what would you like to see happen with shark nets? Uh, immediately removed, uh, but I get to context that. I think replace is the adjective I should be using. So we have so much incredible technology these days that can, has been proven to actually be effective in reducing the risk of a shark interaction occurring and also doesn't kill all of our local marine life. So we're talking about drone surveillance, um, which has a double um, a double benefit of actually being able to help with surf life-saving uh, spots, swimmers who are struggling. So it help, can help reduce the risk of drownings that occur, which is a much more um, heightened, a higher risk at a beach. Um, then we also have things such as effective tracking and tagging programs. Um, so you can have shark listening stations that can send out alerts when a tag shark is actually approaching the area. Um, then we have amazing technology and personal deterrent devices um, that can actually be used on the wearer that have been um, tested to actually proven to help repel sharks if they were to approach your personal space, um, as well as things as, you know, proper shark barriers and enclosures that can section off parts of the beach um, from anything engaging without entangling marine life. And of course, the number one thing is stronger community education. We learn a lot about, you know, what to do if you're caught in a rip or sunburn or drowning, but people aren't really taught about how to mitigate the risk of a shark um, in the area. And we know that, you know, if you're in the ocean, there's sharks nearby, it's their home environment. So there's a lot people can do themselves that actually reduces the risk. Why is it that, I mean, so what you're describing is just like there's so many different options. Why is it that, you know, the nets have lasted so long? Why are we backing nets as the main solution in this part of Australia, at least? I guess it's important to understand that nets aren't backed as the main solution. When we talk mm-hmm. about expanding shark mitigation technology, shark nets aren't what's put forward. Um, they're actually they're just kind of reticent of an archaic age so it's kind of they're not being pushed forward as the savior and there's absolutely no evidence that shows that um that they work um it's just more of they've always because this program is so long it's nearly 100 years it's just been kind of there um in society so we've actually gotten to this peak where people have actually woken up and are a lot more informed about the destructive impact of shark nets and that they don't work and now that we have all this incredible modern technology that can actually replace them in the water, we're seeing this great push for shark nets to be removed. And that's coming from the members of the community. Um, the government has had years of public sentiment uh, research in this area. So we know the communities do not support shark nets. They do not support um, these measures by any means of the imagination. Uh, last year, every single council in New South Wales that has shark nets um, put it forward motions asking for the government to remove shark nets. And we also have the backing by the leading experts in shark mitigation um, saying that this doesn't work and you're killing all of our marine life. So essentially, we've got this massive push across all sectors of the community on this issue, calling for shark nets to be removed. But at the end of the day, it falls on the primary stakeholder, who is the Minister for Agriculture, uh, to just make the decision. So it entirely falls within the realms of politics why these nets haven't been removed. That was Lauren Sanderman from Sea Shepherd. And that's all we've got time for this week. To listen to this show again or any of our previous episodes, head to 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio Blue. We'll be with you again next week, and in the meantime, stay well.